Hi, friends. Welcome back to For Fintech's Sake. I'm your host, Zach Anderson Pettit. My guest today is Steve Schnall, CEO at Quantic Bank. Quantic's a first mover in the Bitcoin rewards debit card space. There are a lot, as we know, of wait lists out there, but Steve and the Quantic team actually have a card live in the market. That's right. You can get online right now and sign up for it and it'll ship to you. We cover Steve's background getting into banking in this episode. We also dive into how they built the Bitcoin rewards debit card and why, and of course, what the future holds for Quantic and the card itself. This episode of For Fintech's Sake is brought to you by Vsum. Vsum is a no-cost virtual conference exploring the value stack of the internet through live technology briefings and moderated small group discussions. Each virtual conference is limited to 100 people and the spots go fast. Learn more and apply to join at vsum.com. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Steve Schnall. Steve, good to have you on for fintech's sake, my friend. How is snowy New York today? Well, Zach, it's great to be here. Uh, snowy New York is just that. Snowy New York. We got a lot of snow this year, but uh, just snuck away to Miami for the weekend and uh, watching the mass uh, migration from New York of New Yorkers down south. But uh, New York's home, so that's where we're doing our thing today. I love it. It's just moving trucks everywhere when you got down to Miami. Just no ability to get through traffic, just all kinds of people unloading vans. Yeah, it was pretty clogged up, but uh, it's uh, interesting days we're living in. It seems the uh, the states on the left and the right are, are moving elsewhere. <laughs> we'll see who's left when the dance stops. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be an interesting shift of the pendulum, a whole bunch of blue folks escaping to red states. And it's going to be interesting. Anyways, before we get too deep into politics, which is just a slippery slope, let's get into Steve's background. So give me the quick kind of Steve story. Where are you from? I know, I think you were born in Florida, right? So kind of interesting uh, transition there from Miami to New York. It's kind of what you did when you were younger, too. Yeah, apropos to this discussion, I was actually born in Columbus, Ohio. But that's a side story. I grew up mostly in Florida, though, and uh, lived down in, in North Miami, Fort Lauderdale when I was a, a little kid. And then um, my parents split and I ended up with uh, my mom and my brother in Clearwater, which is really where I spent the uh, the so-called formative years through high school, college in Gainesville at UF. And um, after my last class at UF, I put all my junk in a U-Haul and pulled it up to the Big Apple and uh, have been here ever since. Kind of the, re- the reverse migration. New Yorkers seem to move to Florida. I was a Floridian that found my way to New York. Yeah, it's an interesting journey north for sure. And then the first thing that you did when you got to New York was in, in the mortgage space, right? You were kind of, I don't know if you were purposefully trying to get into starting new businesses and being an entrepreneur, but that seems to be what you fell backwards into. Tell me that story. Sure. Well, I, you know, I didn't know what, what I was going to be when I grew up, but uh, the plan was to go to law school, got sidetracked. My first job, uh, the thing that, that got me to New York was um, an entry-level position with Pricewaterhouse, had a degree in accounting, and that seemed like a, uh, a good vehicle to bring me up to the city. And uh, about 10 months into my tenure at PW, I was recruited away by some, some real estate flippers to help them start a mortgage business. And the mortgage business is interesting because you've never met anyone who intentionally goes into the mortgage business. People always kind of stumble their way into that. At 23 years old, I, uh, you know, I was partnering a company, sort of living the, the American dream in New York City, if I could make it here, that kind of thing. Yeah. 
but it was a lot of fun. Learned a lot, took some lumps for sure. Met some unsavory types who uh, had their way with me early on. Uh, taught me some valuable lessons about business and life. And uh, But yeah, entrepreneur since other than that 10-month stint with a job, I've, I've always been uh, self-employed CEO and uh, learning a lot and having fun. I love it. So that experience at New York Mortgage Trust, I think was kind of the, would you call that kind of the seed of your banking interest is the getting into the mortgage business, understanding like cost of capital and all that kind of stuff. What kind of led you into the idea of securing a bank charter and standing up Quantic in the the later years? It was. So when when I started in the mortgage business, I was a young guy, no capital. So I started out as a mortgage broker. It didn't require any capital, just a license and, uh, you know, and a willingness to go out and sell and uh, found that I was good at it. And eventually that little one man shop I started evolved. And ultimately, a few years later, we were able to um, to get a banking mortgage banking license and start becoming a director lender. And over the course of 10 years, I built that into a thousand person, uh, 65 office, 65 branch offices in 25 states. We were doing several billion dollars a year in residential finance. But I felt like there was, um, you know, sort of a, a food chain I needed to climb up. And most of the loans, well, all of the loans we made as a mortgage banker, we had to sell by definition as a mortgage banker. So ultimately, I formed a mortgage REIT. And contributed the mortgage bank as a subsidiary subsidiary to the read and then took that public. And so um, New York Mortgage Company was the lender. New York Mortgage REIT was the parent REIT, which uh, was an NYSE listed company. And that took us through to 2006, 2007. Everybody knows what happened shortly thereafter. We had this whole global credit crisis. And leading into that, you know, as a mortgage banker, we were selling most of our production to Wall Street. And we were only retaining the really high credit quality, you know, jumbo arms, full doc, great stuff, securitizing it, owning that plus agency securities in the REIT. But on the mortgage banking side, some of the, what they call now liar loans or no doc loans, it was a small percentage of our business, but we started to see cracks in the market. And some of the loans we made, which loans you'd never in a million years want to own, but some of the loans we made and that we were selling to Wall Street started coming back to us with early payment defaults. You know, it took a sober look at the market. It's 2006. The real estate, um, the real estate market's frothy as hell. And it just seemed like, you know, you're getting real estate advice from your taxi drivers and your hairdresser and your waiter and everybody owns two or three homes. And uh, and then loans started to default. So I saw the writing on the wall plain as day, made a very difficult decision to sell this company that I had built since right out of college and ultimately executed a sale of the mortgage business to uh, a West Coast a West Coast bank called IndyMac. Uh, they um, infamously were the first big thrift to blow up but uh, they paid us cash. So unfortunately didn't affect us. Yeah. I mean, you were pretty clairvoyant. Like there were not a lot of people in 07 that were willing to uh, tell the emperor that he had no clothes or, you know, whatever the right metaphor or analogy is there. Like there weren't many people even willing to be open about the fact that some version of doom might be upon us. Well, there were, a lot of players who had a vested interest in perpetuating what was going on, you know, guys making multi-million dollar bonuses by acquiring and securitizing these mortgages and who's going to raise their hand and say, I think we should stop. I'm making too much money. Let's call it a day. But, you know, I was the largest shareholder in this mortgage read and I had to look at it a little differently because if this didn't end well, it would end 
devastatingly for me in terms of, you know, my, this was my, you know, my biggest asset. And I, you know, I, I couldn't afford to have the blinders on that a lot of people kept on, you know, but there were a lot of, a lot of perpetrators here, a lot of uh, blame to go around, you know, whether it was the originators like me or the aggregators like Baron Lehman and, you know, some of the others, or was it the rating agencies that were stamping AAA gratuitously on anything that people would pay them for? Or was it the end bond buyers? You know, I, I think there's, there's blame to go all around and hopefully we've learned some lessons from that, but people tend to have short memories and we always seem to repeat our, our mistakes, but it was, um, it was a tough time and it was challenging enough that made me swear out of the mortgage finance business forever. But and then this whole credit crisis and you saw banks failing by the hundreds and a lot of consolidation taking place. And then there was this new Dodd-Frank legislation, which made it harder for some credit worthy prospective home buyers to get mortgages. And um, I saw an opportunity, you know, a lot of my former executives are calling me and saying, hey, you know, there's a dearth of lending going on in communities that really need it. You know, immigrants and self-employed, you know, small business owners, gig economy workers, I guess that was a new term then. But unless you really check the box, you know, full doc, Fannie, Freddie, conventional underwriting, you're not getting a loan now. And even then, a lot of banks were still skittish. So I figured it's an opportunity not only to do something new that would be a little more intellectually interesting to me, never uh, obviously owned a bank, more or less worked at one. But um, I started asking around and everybody that I asked is this, you know, what do you think about this idea? They all told me it was a terrible idea that uh, you'll never make any money as a small bank. The regulators are going to kill you. You're going to hate it. And uh, and that inspired me. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody says, don't do something. I run directly into it. And um, this time I didn't run into the table. saw. I actually ended up making something good happen with it, but it was um, a process, let's say. And so I went, uh, I went shopping and I figured if, I could compete as a small bank, as a community bank, if I had something that was differentiated about us. And I think that holds true, especially today in the market. Community banks are trying to figure out who they are and how they're going to compete with this whole fintech evolution. And in 2010, when I bought this tiny little bank with 20 million in assets and 2 million in capital, losing a couple hundred grand a month. So it was going to be gone in a minute. So what I really bought was a shell, a charter. And, uh, and I injected a mortgage business into it because that was really the core competency that I brought to the table. But we went about it a much different way. You know, we went about it with a mission to try to serve the underbanked and try to serve markets that were just being neglected and maybe for good reason by some. But as an entrepreneur, I couldn't resist figuring out a way to, to measure and manage this risk and do so profitably so that we can actually help people that need help but yet have a, a business line with it was a monoline business line within a federally chartered thrift that enabled us to, to do so safely and soundly and profitably. And uh, that was really the, the, the beginnings of uh, what Quantic is today. Your general contrarian nature resonates with me. Anytime somebody tells me I can't do something, the only thing I want to do is that thing. So I get, I get that. And I love that. And I understand the the chip on the shoulder associated with that. And it's, it's been quite a journey, right? In those 10 years, like it's a, a thesis that makes a lot of sense. I'm curious specifically kind of about some of the X's and O's of 
purchasing that bank? Like, how did you go about, I mean, I know you had just sold a company. Were you kind of like taking the proceeds from that personally and buying this bank on almost like a personal capacity? Were you raising money from others? What was that process like? Because I think a lot of folks view starting a bank or acquiring a bank or any way, shape or form, getting that charter is like a 30 to $40 million, 10 year experience. Uh, And it sounds like you cut that down pretty significantly monetarily and time-wise. For sure. At that time, there were really no new charters being issued. So you couldn't start a bank. Regulators were busy mopping up the mess of all the failing and failed banks. And so the bank I found was small enough you know, at two million in capital, you know, I paid two times book for that bank, which was a high price on a multiple basis, but really I paid a two million dollar premium for a bank to have a charter. And so we also then need to in, needed to inject new capital into it to make it viable. But I was able to to parlay you know, some of what I had captured uh, of the value from my former company. And uh, so, you know, I, I grabbed um a former executive of mine who became my chief lending officer. He and I, mostly me, capitalized this, the, the new entity. And then we went out and raised a little bit of money too. So I, I put up about half the money and, uh, and raised half the money. And between what it cost us to acquire and then the additional capital we put in, you know, we had enough money to be viable. We didn't have enough money to really come compete in the New York City market. Every, ultimately, my circle of influence was Manhattan. That's where I lived and had been living for so long. But um, the bank we bought was in Great Neck, which is a little community on Long Island just outside of New York City. So the first thing I did is I moved the bank from Great Neck to Astoria, Queens, which is as close as you can get to Manhattan without being there right across the river. But the cool thing about Astoria was that it's, um, well, Queens in general is the most ethnically diverse place on earth. You've got people from every single country and walk of life there. And so for our strategy, it was really a good place to start because this is where the immigrants and the the small business owners were flourishing, but yet being left out of the mortgage financing opportunities. So we started there and we began to build the bank there. And the two prongs of the bank were obviously you've got your asset side. In our case, that was going to be residential mortgages. And then you have your liability side, which is deposits. And at the time, I saw brick and mortar bank branching as something that would soon become extinct, at least from from the retail perspective, commercial banking is different. And so I vowed not to open branches. And instead, I was going to, you know, capture business online. And, you know, hindsight being 2020, I was wrong. I was early. I was right, but I was early. And so we never really built a core deposit franchise. And um, we ended up, for anybody that knows anything about how, you know, banking and deposit gathering work, we ended up getting our deposits from the wrong places, wholesale deposits, broker deposits, listing services, things the regulators don't like. And as a result of that, we ended up years later in a little bit of hot water with the regulators because ultimately they view core retail deposits as sticky and safe and the types of deposits we were bringing in as uh, hot and risky. So we really had a pretty deep incentive to try to pivot and take that vision I had years earlier of being an online bank and bring it to reality. And in the last couple of years is where we really started putting rubber to the road and investing a ton of time and resources and hiring the right people 
and making this true conversion from community bank to digital bank. And um, we learned a lot along the way. And we, uh, we, we, I think we're succeeding at it now. And it's, it's an interesting marketplace for sure, because now you've got all of the fintechs that are chipping away at what were historically bank-only products and services. You've got these new neobanks. And then you've, of course, got traditional banks that are now branching in, you know, spin-off models to be standalone neobanks or digital banks and then and every flavor in between. So uh, we got here early and uh, we got here at the right time for sure. And so now every day we wake up and we eat, sleep and drink uh, digital banking. Yeah. I mean, you really have been a, a trailblazer, right? I mean, even in, was it 2020 or 2019 when you all won kind of digital banker of the year? Uh, it was 2020. As last year, our chief our chief innovation officer, which was it was Patrick, a novel position to have at a community bank, he was recognized as as a digital banker of the year, which was quite quite an accolade for him and for us because to be a digital bank and to also be recognized by American Banker amongst the thousands of banks out there as having as having been doing something you know that stands out was um, it felt really good and it, it just affirmed that what we were doing made sense and was right and it was nice that others were recognizing it the title and position in and of itself is a unique thing I mean I remember back when I was at MBKC at my community bank there was always this sense of like the person that generally, you know, the younger person in Patrick's case, you know, slick back hair, the whole nine getting credit because, you know, they're the person that's up on stage, right? They're the person that's speaking on behalf of, but none of that, in my experience, none of the accolades I got when I was at the bank, none, nothing that I did could have happened without my CEO actually, and my CFO, the whole leadership team, like seeing the future. Right. And understanding that this is something that needs somebody can create a culture that allows someone like Patrick to flourish unique inside of community banking, I think. Yeah, it's the whole team. I mean, from me as CEO on down, the executive team has to be aligned in what the vision is. And you have to be resolute that you're going to pursue this vision. And then you have to also recognize that you're going to be wrong a lot of the times in what you were resolute about and you need to pivot and change. And that was one of the fun things about um, starting to hire some new senior level people who weren't traditional bankers like Patrick, for example, you know, he came out of digital marketing and yeah. he and I built a, a you know, an, an Ethereum mining operation together. And we were all about crypto and how to bring crypto and banking together. Is there a product set that could really help us to be set apart from the rest? And so it's really just a lot of imagineering, as we would call it. We would just sit, you know, at a whiteboard and say, what if we did this? What if we did that? And, uh, and then we recognized that community banks don't evolve well. And, you know, they are traditionally staffed by career bankers mm -hmm. that are really great, smart, well-intended people. But in order to be able to become this online animal, most of the fintechs that we compete against have digital in their DNA. You know, the, the, the people they hire, they're coders and they're, you know, they understand SEO and SEM and they understand all of the different technologies that are required to bring to bear to make this happen. And, uh, and, and the, conver the conversion from old school brick and mortar to digital was, was challenging. But once we started hiring more of the right people, it was amazing what we could what we could accomplish. So, a chief innovation officer was the first such person. You know, we need to innovate, and we need to have somebody who's in charge of that. And we have a chief people officer now, and that's also not a typical position for a community bank. And and my, this guy's Mike Lance, and he doesn't run HR per se, but he he has um, 
you know, just his, his fingerprints all over. How do you recruit the right people? How do you, uh, how do you identify them? How do you interview them? You know, how do you, how do you figure out in an interview if someone's got the right skills that you need? And if they're a cultural fit, how do you onboard them? How do you train them? How do you make sure they feel empowered and that they have a career path and that their work is valuable and that they're recognized? And so, you know, we built a, uh, a system of everybody needs to have KPIs, you know, top to bottom. Every employee in the company knows exactly what it is that they're being held accountable to, how we're measuring their behavior, how we're monitoring it, how we're rewarding them on it. Yep. And, uh, and we also have a chief empowerment offer, officer now. Hmm. And uh, this woman, Casey, her, she's a, a, a career banker, but she's just a dynamo. It's just a ton of energy, loves loves people and empowerment. And her, her whole job is to make sure that our employees and our customers feel empowered, that there's diversity and inclusion, which are obviously so critical today to make sure that um, people feel acknowledged, that they have a role and a voice and they're heard. And we have a cadence of meetings and we do fun things and have wine and cheese, Zoom parties and all this other good stuff. And uh, so, and you know, chief information security officer, a little bank, you know, the head of IT runs that. Well, we yeah. figured we're, we're going to become a true digital bank. We need the right people in the right seats. And now that um, we've filled out that team with a you know, very talented group, we're, we're able to really start to push the innovation engine forward and, and do some great stuff. Yeah, I'm curious about the the KPIs piece, especially with the chief empowerment officer. How do you measure empowerment? I mean, I know there's like DE&I metrics that you're kind of striving for, I'm sure. But how do you, is it like an MPS survey of employees? Like, how, how do you measure that? Because it feels like kind of an ethereal thing. Well, it's inexact, obviously, but sure. there are building blocks. So, you know, we have these offsites where we'll have people take Myers-Briggs tests and then we'll talk a lot about, you know, a lot of the people, the reason there's conflict amongst employees is because they don't understand that the personality type of the other person that they're dealing with or having this conflict with. And so, you know, helping people to have tools to be able to, to flourish and resolve conflict and, um, and navigate the different personality styles was one way. The KPIs, by the way, are really important. I can't understate the value of the KPIs because we, we survey our employees uh, with some regularity. You know, we survey them around, you know, working from home, which is a still a yeah. big thing. Make sure that people feel engaged. And if they don't try to figure out what it would take to make them feel engaged. Yeah. More training. Is it more activities? Is it we really need to get together face to face safely if we can from time to time? Yeah. But one of the biggest things I would say, and we didn't invent this obviously, but the KPIs, if we found in serving employees that most of what people wanted wasn't necessarily more money. They wanted job satisfaction. Yeah. And how do you get job satisfaction? Well, one of the ways you get job satisfaction is by having a feedback loop so that you know that what you're doing is actually what the company values. And that if you do it well, hey, by the way, maybe I can get rewarded for it. And so every manager had to go down to every employee level and say, what do you do? Even if you're the receptionist, you know, how can we measure your success and then build KPIs around it? And now not only do people know, a lot of people don't even really know what exactly it is that's expected of them. And that's sort of, that's prevalent amongst all business types. And so again, not perfect at any of this, but working hard to become, you know, a destination employer, if that's an overused cliche, I'm not sure, but. Well, I don't think it is an overused 
Not inside of banking, right? Like it's a, uh, it's probably an overused term at like Facebook or Twitter or what, like, you know, all of these places <laughs> that you think of as like the place to work, right? Well, maybe not. So those were probably two poor choices based on the world we're living in today, <laughs> but you know, the general going to work at zoom that we're using right now, something like that. Right. But for community banking, I don't think that, I think I can count on, you know, one hand, the number of community bank leaders that are really, really, really focused on that on a national scale. Right. Like there's some folks that are like, yeah, I'm that person or I'm that bank inside of my county or something. But the way that you all are thinking about it on a more kind of universal scale, I think is really interesting, which also kind of takes me back to something that you mentioned almost in passing that I think is not something that I think a lot of a lot of community bank CEOs say out loud. We partnered together to build an Ethereum mining business, right? Like that sentence in and of itself, you know, you kind of skate through it, but I'm going to make you pause at least a little bit here and talk about it. And that obsession, I think, led to some other things at Quantic that I want to talk about as well. But tell me just generically how you got into cryptocurrency, right? How you decided that this mattered, how you decided that you wanted to spend time and money understanding and digging into this new world of DeFi? Well, I bought my first Bitcoin at $75. Oh, what are you doing on the phone with me? Shouldn't you already be in Miami, like on the beach, sipping a Mai Tai? That's, I mean, talk about returns, my friend. I've got two words for you, Mount Gox. Oh, I forgot. You told me that you told me this when we connected before. Yeah. Okay. So tell that story. Tell that story. (laughs) Actually, I I saw a TV show. It was really bizarre. There was a show called The Good Wife, which aired years ago. Oh, wow. Okay. One of those lawyer shows. And um, there was an episode where this attorney comes into the firm and has this client. I think the client was Satoshi supposedly. And uh, they were talking about this thing called Bitcoin and the client needed some legal counsel. And I had never even heard the word Bitcoin. So I went on to um, the internet. I went on to like YouTube and I just fell into this rabbit hole of Bitcoin videos. Oh man. Bitcoin was under a dollar at the time. And uh, I'm like, I should just like grab 10 grand worth of these things (laughs) if only, but uh, I didn't. And then sometime later, I was on a, uh, a ski trip and a friend of a friend was um, a founder of uh, a, fin- a, fin- a crypto fintech called Zappo. And he, uh, I said, hey, let me ask you about Bitcoin. He started telling me the story. You know, he was pretty deep into it at the time. Sure. And, uh, he says he didn't tell me this, but he did. He said that uh, I promise you it'll be $10,000 within 10 years. This is when it was at $17. Oh. So I went out and I crashed into a tree on my snowboard and I ended up in the hospital for a week. And so I said, okay, I'm going to look into this Bitcoin thing. <laughs> and, uh, so I wired okay. some money over to Tokyo, <laughs> which is where you had to go to get Bitcoin. And, uh, and I bought myself some Bitcoin at Mt. Gox and, uh, and we all know what happened with the hack there. So I, I ended up with roughly 15% of my original holdings from Mt. Oh. Gox, which um, is still not complaining. I mean, could have been a lot better, but so I always had this crypto Bitcoin in the back of my mind. And then when I met uh, young Mr. Sells, he, um, I hired his firm originally do, to do digital marketing for us. And uh, one day I was out at his, his shop in Indianapolis and his, his office was in this sort of a class B office building. And um, I asked him, I said, so I said, are you sub metered here? 
or <laughs> was electric included in your rent? And he says, it's included in the rent. And I don't know who came up with the idea first. We, um, we debated, but we're like, we should build a mining operation here because the electric's free. And uh, maybe that's cheating. I don't know. But hey, I mean, they wrote the contract. You know, you're just functioning inside of the rules laid out, you know. And then we had fun with it. We found that it was actually hard to find video cards, that these things were really tough to come by. So uh, we sent some guys all over the place. We you know drive up to Canada and buy some and check wow. them back. And we ended up assembling a pretty decent-sized bunch of rigs and uh, and started mining for Ethereum. It was around $800 at the time, so it made sense. And then... Ethereum dropped like you know off the cliff, and uh, so and he ultimately closed that office when I hired him. We had to dismantle all the rigs, and they're sitting in a closet somewhere. <laughs> so that like mining that experience and uh, not paying the electrical bill, all of that is kind of the like the seed or like the beginning of what led to this Bitcoin rewards debit card at Quantic, right? Is that kind of the? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it was a winding road, but was that kind of the thread? Yeah, the idea was. I knew that if I could inject some new, young, tech-savvy life into this bank, that we could do something potentially great. And cryptocurrency is all that just kept ringing in our heads, cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. And so at the time, well, I mean, the banks still don't really own Bitcoin. I mean, now they can custody it. But we, we wanted to come up with some product that had Bitcoin in it and, um, you know, we talked to a, like there's a couple of firms that specialize in in consulting with and, and providing banks with products and services that help them to offer reward, you know, checking, cash back checking and high interest checking and other types of rewards. And, uh, and we're like, well, what about a rewards program that paid people back in Bitcoin? And um, it sounded easier than it was uh, when we went to our regulator with it. To our surprise, they didn't shut it down, but there was nobody. This is only two and a half, three years ago, there was no bank talking, uttering the word Bitcoin. And, um, but it was, you could start to see the shift. And so they were receptive to it. And um, so they, they put us to task and proved that you could do this safely, that you could have the right guardrails around it, the right compliance, the right monitoring, the right KYC, AML, disclosures, partners, uh, and all that good stuff. And, um, and, and they worked with us and ultimately we came up with the product that worked that, yeah. um, you know, that, uh, we, we were able to launch and that was Bitcoin rewards checking and it would have nice to have been a year earlier on it. Uh, but we were still first to the market with a Bitcoin rewards, uh, checking or debit card program. And, uh, it's, it's the first of what will be many, innovative products on our journey to, you know, really fulfilling this vision of being uh, what we call ourselves an adaptive digital bank, because we're going to constantly try to adapt and build products that really speak to the passions of our customers. And we recognize we did a bunch of surveys and we recognize that there are millions and millions of people out there that have heard of Bitcoin, like the idea of Bitcoin, but might not be ready to risk their own money or don't know where to get it or how to open an account or they're scared or, or they don't have the resources to buy it. Mm-hmm. And we felt we we're tapping into all of that because this was a good entry point for people that said, hey, I can earn Bitcoin by doing what I do every day anyway, swiping my debit card at Starbucks or, you know, or whatever. And, um, and, and as it turns out, when we started offering this Bitcoin rewards program, unlike membership miles or airline miles, those don't appreciate. 
Yeah. Anybody who started using our rewards program a few months ago when we launched it, their their one and a half percent back in Bitcoin has doubled and tripled in value. And that's kind of the thesis behind it. You can get into Bitcoin with no cost and you have an appreciating asset that's um, a hedge against inflation and potentially will help you to build wealth. Ultimately, we'd like to build out a product and it's 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 you know, on the on the development team now uh, to be able to enable customers to actually buy and sell Bitcoin. And, you know, we'll use third party provider. We're not going to be an exchange or anything like that. We're not going to do anything that our regulators would, um, you know, would not favor. But ultimately, I think people trust banks more than they trust the, the, like the crypto exchanges because there have been so many stories, Mt. Gox being one, although that's old news. Yeah. But uh, I, I envision a day where, I mean, you saw BNY Mellon last week came out and said they're offering custodial Bitcoin custodial services, they're the largest custodian in, in the country. And so yeah. you're going to see more and more of this. And, you know, we're a small bank, but we're growing. We're not going to own this category, but we really we want to play in it. And we think uh, we think it's just a, an interesting facet to community banking, and it also helps us to stay relevant and stay and stay interesting and exciting and attract customer eyeballs. And ultimately, if we want to raise capital at some point, uh, you know, this is um, a valuable part of our of our story. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of almost like the maybe this is a little bit grandiose, I don't know, but the Tesla mission, right? Of if we do this thing, the rest of the market will react because we have done it in a very unique way. And because of that, we will push forward electric vehicles or, you know, sustainable vehicle creation or like whatever the buzzword is that exists at that point. But it's almost like Quantic as a community bank stepping up and doing the first one of these Bitcoin rewards cards will create a mental model in people's heads where, and I mean, now I am seeing them just in my day job, I'm talking to, you know, 10 different companies that are trying to do some version of this and have not figured it out in the way you guys have, but it seems like the market, the market is reacting. And I think you guys took a not easy first step that I'm really curious about the regulators point of view on. I mean, the fact that they didn't just tell you to pound sand is pretty wild. What was their main concern? Was it just the novel nature of Bitcoin? Did you just have to explain, hey, this is a thing? Or was there actual concern about, is it a store of value? Like, What were they mainly trying to unpack to feel more comfortable with? The regulators don't generally approve or disapprove sure. things yes. like this. Everything's a gray area. First of all, it has to be legal. This this thing yep. you're going to do has to fit within the parameters of what the regulations allow for. And so we started there and we went to our attorneys and, and we said, okay, let's, let's take this from A to Z. Is there anything in any regulation which says we can't do this? We determined the answer was no. Is there anything in the regulation which explicitly permits this? And the answer was maybe. And so because there was no no and there was a definitive maybe, then we had a good starting point and we presented it to the OCC. They basically put it back to us and said, and they, they asked a lot of questions, round after round after round of questions. And what was amazing was how much time and attention they gave to us. I mean, at the highest levels of their legal hierarchy, they really were deeply engaged with us to help. Again, they're not going to approve this or deny it, but ultimately they'll say it's up to your board to do. And and P.S., if you do it, we're going to come in and examine you. (laughs) You better have your ducks in a row. But um, they led us to the point where we could make the determination that this is both permissible under the regulations and that we figured out how to do it safely. 
And they really were instrumental in that process, as was NIDIG, a firm I'm sure you're familiar with and that we're going to be hearing more about. They're our partner in the fulfillment. So when, when we reward our customers with Bitcoin, we don't buy the Bitcoin because we don't own the Bitcoin, but NIDIG is uh, the, the partner that we integrate with. And so by connectivity, they see our on an anonymous basis activity and then they know how much Bitcoin to buy for our customers and put into our customers' account. So it was hard. And not just, by the way, from a regulatory standpoint, uh, that burden was on us. And I think we satisfied it, at least uh, as far as management and our board are concerned. Yeah. But the build out of how to make it work, I've seen so many others, you know, Visa and others are talking about these Bitcoin rewards programs coming soon. Right. And yeah, these are smart people. And, And if they haven't drilled in, which I'm sure they have, they recognize that there are a lot of moving parts to this, not just from the disclosures, but, you know, how and when you procure the Bitcoin and reward it at what time of day and how does the customer know when they're getting it, what they're getting, when can they sell it? How can they sell it? You know, can it be transferred in and out? You need to, there are a lot of parts that need to be figured out. And so we said, first step is let's figure all this out. And only after we have it all figured out and launch it in a beta way and and understand if the customers really want this, then we build the mobile technology around it. So, you know, right now we still have our our pre-existing mobile app, which doesn't have Bitcoin rewards checking functionality in it. Then you can see your checking account and use it just like you would any other mobile app. But sure. our version two will be our the full-blown Bitcoin rewards where you can go onto your mobile app and you know, see your Bitcoin balances. And ultimately, uh, we'd like to see the opportunity for people to be able to buy and sell Bitcoin and, and do all that good stuff. So uh, there's a, there's a next gen coming. And so that's, um, and by the time we get there, there'll probably be three other things that we'll need to figure out. But, but Bitcoin's only part of it. The other part of it is, it, you know, we're all, all these fintechs and neobanks are, are competing against old school. And old school is you overdraw your account, you get charged $35. You right. get banged by ATM fees everywhere. It's unfriendly. It's bank centric, fee centric, consumer unfriendly products. And we're breaking that mold along with others that are trying to disintermediate some of the banks. But unlike some of the fintech neo banks, like the Chimes of the world, who are doing a great job at amassing millions of customers, we're that plus the bank. And so I think we could add a lot more value to the, the customer proposition because, for instance, we have a, um, a high interest checking account. We pay 1% interest on a checking account. The average savings account in the country pays a quarter point. The highest savings account in the account in the country that I can find pays 65 basis points. We're paying 1% on a checking account, but it's predicated on certain behavior. You have to use your debit card a certain number of times to earn that 1% because mm. we can't print 1% out of thin air. But if you use your debit card, we'll earn interchange and we'll give it back to you in the form of a high interest rate. And so constructing products that are valuable to the consumer that give something back to the consumer to reward them for their loyalty versus the reverse where you're doing them a favor by taking their money, turning that upside down. And so, you know, part of our, our mission and vision is every product we build that faces the customer has to be something that values the customer. And so Bitcoin was the first one high interest checking we've had, you know, we'll start to promote that, I think, a little more assertively in the coming months. And then we've got others, others on the um, on the horizon. And and then that's the the deposit gathering side. And as you know, we've discussed, we're also a CDFI, which is yeah. 
pretty rare for banks. There are only 140 or so CDFI banks in the country out of 6,000 banks. And um, as a CDFI, which is a community development financial institution, our actual stated mission is to provide loans to low-income households, people in low-income low-income communities, and uh, and to really try to foster homeownership amongst people that are being left behind and left out. And a lot of those people are people of color, people that have historically had a difficult time obtaining financing. So this is where we bring all of those years of experience that I built in the mortgage business to a community slash national digital bank and use those deposits we're bringing in on the digital bank platform to put low-income people into homes. So not only are we trying to innovate on the digital bank side, but we're trying to do some good with the money we bring in, profitably, of course, uh, but to to help the underbank. And that's a critical part of, of who we are. Yeah. I mean, I, I would think that the deposit side and like the Bitcoin rewards debit card and the high interest checking, I mean, everything that we're talking about, I think would not only the residential mortgage piece would benefit the average person that we think of as benefiting from CDFIs, but I would think the the card, like the access to even just whatever 1.5% of that swipe in Bitcoin is, like just the access to that, I would think is... I'm so sick of the word democratizing, but there's a certain kind of democratization to that that I think is pretty novel and important in just society right now. I don't know what the question is out of that, but it's just like I'm thinking about like how the flywheel turns from there. And it's really interesting. The paradigm has shifted to where the consumer is in charge now. Right. And the consumer has options. And so, you know, as a bank, we can take your deposits and your money in our case, make money with it and, and do good with it. But, you know, we need to actually reward you for your business. And like I said, it was the opposite previously. So it's really exciting what's happening, you know, in terms of empowering uh, retail consumers to be able to have a lot of options. And the, um, the fintechs are leading the charge. And, uh, and we fancy ourselves a fintech slash bank. And so, like I said, you know, if you're if you're Chime or one of those other neo banks that that aren't a bank, you can bring in a deposit and you can earn money on interchange, but you're not going to be able to give any of it back to the customer because that's really your only source of revenue. And so we can give all that interchange back to the customer in the form of Bitcoin or cash, high interest rates, right? And then use your deposits to make money lending and lending to the right populations per our mission. Yeah. So I know that you know there's this very quantic branded roadmap that you're running after, right? Like you got everything that we're talking about. You've got these, these different sets of products that benefit these different sets of individuals. In my experience, one of the tougher parts of what we're talking about is scaling that without spending $25 million on marketing, right? Like just the, the ability to go out and spend on ads, spend on whatever it is to actually get the customers in the door was it was actually a big reason that we at MBKC went the route of fintech partnerships, right? And listening to everything that you've built in terms of core competency, in terms of technology, in terms of just assets in general inside of the bank, if I was standing up a net new fintech company or if I was even inside of one of the established ones that we're talking about, a lot of the technology you have, I would think could benefit me in a pretty sizable way. So I know that you have, like you're running very hard on building an actual like core business inside of Quantic, but have you thought about, or is there a future state where you support outside 
fintech companies. Do you kind of go that route eventually and act as one of those? I wouldn't rule it out. We have a pretty a pretty full slate of projects yeah. built around serving the consumer right now. And there are a number of banks doing a really good job with banking as a service, whether you're powering marketplace lenders or the likes of the neobanks. So, but the, to your point on how much it costs to scale and drive those customers in the door, we actually have more deposits coming in than we need or want. And we're not spending any money on it. Now, the the way we're succeeding at it is um, a lot of it's PR, it's social media, it's talking to guys like you telling the story and um, and seeing if anybody wants to talk about us. And also there's a lot of affiliate marketing opportunities, as you probably know, because the um, the lending we do is as you know, we, we make many times more loans than we could possibly put on our balance sheet because we're really good at lending. So we sell the vast majority of the loans we make at very nice gain on sale margins. And so that revenue from the mortgage side also helps to fuel the tech build. And then um, we can also afford to pay a little more on our savings accounts and CDs than other banks. So if the average bank is paying 50 basis points on a savings account and we pay 60, the build it and they will come customers find you and yeah. we don't have to spend any money any meaningful money marketing for it so does that scale i think that as long as we have something of value to the consumer whether it's rewards that people want to talk about and give us some media attention over or whether it's just we pay uh, at the top end of the you know i mean marcus goldman sachs digital bank is a you know a great example they brought in tens of billions of dollars just by being a little bit higher in rate than others. Yeah. And there's a trade-off between paying a little bit more versus what it costs to market if you just want to be in the hunt. But the key for us is it's mar- net interest margin and we can afford to pay a little more because our asset yields are, are, are pretty healthy. And yeah. so um, it's a good model. But ultimately, as far as banking as a service, we don't want to be all things to all people. So you know, one of the things we talk about is focus equals growth. If we really focus on who we are and what we do well and just run at it hard and try to resist all of the shiny objects that keep flying at us and saying, oh, well, we should do this, 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 and this, which I'm guilty as hell of because I can't help it. Yeah. Um, but if you try to just stay in your lane for a minute and really do well, something that works, then you grow. And so that's a discipline we really try to exercise uh, every day. Uh, it's not an easy discipline for anybody. I mean, anybody that gets a chip on their shoulder when you tell them they can't do something. It's it's difficult to stop them from doing that thing you told them they can't do. So yeah. It's it's my management team saying <laughs> we don't have we can't do that now. <laughs> well sounds like you've got a good management team. If they're telling you no that often, that's probably a good thing. And this idea that, you know, I, I think it's funny listening to people talk about scale in marketing, right? And this idea that oh, this marketing strategy will scale. I have yet to see a marketing strategy that works. I mean, from a startup point of view that works at seed that also works at series A that also works at series B. And from a banking perspective, like thinking about how much the world has changed in the past two months, not to mention 12, like the idea that anything is going to scale in perpetuity in the world we're living in today, I think is just silly. So it seems like you all are nimble enough and have the right culture to just kind of react as is necessary, but also keeping the horse blinders on and staying focused and, and doing some really interesting stuff. So I love it. 
I would love to do a follow-up in like six to 12 months or something based on kind of how the Bitcoin price is doing, see what else is kind of percolating at Quantic because I really, I've learned a lot about kind of what a bank can be, you know, coming from MBKC, great culture, great company, great bank, but Quantic is very different. And what you all are going after truly does speak to the fintech market, I think in a way that that is not average in this space. So anyways, that was my long rambling, I love what you're doing uh, kind of ending here. But the last question that I'll ask before we kind of sign off is, what can our listeners do to help you? So are you guys hiring? Where can folks reach out and, and be of help to you, Steve, and be of help to Quantic? I think we've got dozens of open positions listed on our website. You can open a Bitcoin rewards checking account and start earning some free Bitcoin. But primarily that. Come work for us or be our customer. There you go. I love it, man. I love it. All right. Well, thanks for taking the time, Steve. Always fun talking to you. And we definitely have to do a follow-up once we uh, see what more insanity 2021 brings us. Yeah, I love that, Zach. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to uh, chat with you today. And and, uh, let's do it again. All right. I hope you enjoyed this episode of For Fintech's Sake with Steve Schnall of Quantic Bank. I've included pertinent links to find Steve and learn more about Quantic in the show notes. So take a look there. This episode was brought to you by Vsum. Go to v-sum.com to learn more and apply to be part of the next event. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and all the other things I'm supposed to remind you to do in your favorite podcast app as the responsible podcast host that I am. And if you want our weekly emails, go to forfintechsake.com and subscribe there. Until next time, stay healthy, keep your head high, and hopefully your returns will follow. This is not investment advice. I'm guessing you've stopped listening by now. Maybe you're trying to find a new episode. See you next week.